Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 332nd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Liz Hand. Liz is the co-owner of Pleasant Wealth, a hybrid advisory firm based in Canton, Ohio, that oversees $146 million in assets under management for 522 client households. What's unique about Liz, though, is how she and her brother have taken ownership of what was originally their father's broad commission-based practice with more than 1,500 clients and have managed to balance the transitioning of the business into a fee-based financial planning practice while still doing right by the smaller or more transactional clients who may have been with the firm for a decade or more. In this episode, we talk in depth about how to realize their vision for the future of a commission-based firm their father originally built. Liz and her brother have gone through the messy multi-year process of refocusing to a niche and right-sizing their client loads. How Liz and her brother realized in the process of buying into the firm that they didn't want to continue working on retirement plans and encouraged their father to sell that portion of the business to their former UNESCO branch office and use the proceeds from that sale to reduce the buyout cost for the portion of the firm they wanted to buy. And why Liz chose to change the firm's BD relationship to Kestra based not only on a pricing structure that was just a better fit for where their practice was going, but also the cultural fit that she felt would better support them as advisors. We also talk about why before buying into her father's firm, Liz decided to become the successor for another advisor so that she could have an opportunity to find her own voice as an advisor independent of being her father's family successor. How, as a part of the process of fulfilling her vision of the firm in the future, Liz has decided to refocus the firm's niche away from Onmesh and Mennonite clientele that her father grew with over the years and towards independent women retiring alone who need not just an advisor, but a thinking partner. And how Liz envisions to implement three tiers of service for the firm's clients in the future. Foundations for the legacy transactional clients who may engage less frequently, Flow for the ongoing clients who want financial planning, and Flourish, a group coaching program to help clients actually implement recommendations and achieve their financial goals. And be starting to listen to the end, where Liz shares how engaging with a mindset coach through Limitless helped her find the confidence to implement the changes that she and her brother envisioned for the firm and give herself permission to iterate over time instead of feeling pressure to have everything ready all at once. How Liz was inspired to become a mindset coach herself for other advisors and now is planning to use that training to incorporate mindset work and coaching for her clients. And why Liz feels that younger, newer advisors trying to establish their voice as an advisor would benefit more from joining industry associations, both to gain more perspective on different methods of financial planning and to find the ones that resonate with them the most so they can be more of their own authentic selves with clients. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Liz Hand. Welcome, Liz Hand, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks, Michael. It's great to be here. I'm, I'm really looking forward to today's conversation and, and a journey that I, you know, I think is happens a lot in our advisor world that that we don't necessarily talk about as much, which is this the like these transitions when you've got an advisory business that built built over the years or even over the decades in the in the commission based world and in the insurance based world 
And what happens when you want to transition it to say, no, no, we're more financial planning centric and we're more advisory focused in the future, but we actually have to get from here to there and mm-hmm. navigate little messy things like, but they didn't buy us for financial planning originally. Like they, they bought mm-hmm. us for that insurance policy they needed seven years ago or 17 years ago or 27 years ago. Uh, oh, and by the way, uh, you know, in an insurance-based business, we tend to have a much higher volume of clients because we're not mm-hmm. doing as much ongoing servicing. So like, by the way, we have to roll out financial planning to like a thousand clients and there's only two of us. Good luck with that. Uh, and, and I know you've lived a version of this journey with with some family dynamics as well because you came into um, your father's practice that had this incredible book of insurance clients, but then you have to figure out like, what am I going to make this in the future as I come into the business? And so I just, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to talk about sort of the, the, the messy realities of on the one hand, I think there's a lot of advisors that would say like, I, you know, I wish I didn't have to live the pure world of like cold calling and cold knocking some of the rest and that I could have, uh, like find an opportunity to buy into a practice and, and, and take over a book of clients. But then you get to the reality of it. And it's like, yeah, it's a little messier than you might think in practice. Mm -hmm. So looking forward to hearing about that journey as you have lived it firsthand. Yeah, absolutely. I totally resonate with that idea of like the grass is greener on the other side. I've had my moments of fantasizing about starting over from scratch and how much easier that would be. Um, But both, both sides have their uh, pros and their cons. Well, so, all right. So I just, I have to hear a little bit more of that out of the gate because, because there are <laughs> just, there are so many advisors I, I know over the years who have said like started from scratch, did the calling and the knocking and the networking and all that stuff. It was, mm-hmm. it was, it was rough. It was awful. I wish I just could have had a, like a practice to buy into. And then here you are saying like, yeah, I did that and kept thinking about starting my own business from <laughs> and not doing that. So, um, so I guess just like help us with this journey a, a little bit. Like how, what was this like buy-in pathway into the business and, and what did that look like that ultimately you were even wondering, why did I do this to myself? Yeah. I mean, depending on where you want to start with that. Um, I think, you know, as, as an eighth grader, I spent a summer in my dad's practice. Um, and the purpose was to do filing and create a spreadsheet for him, you know, just some basic things. Um, but he allowed me to sit in on a client meeting and I was just so captivated by the way that the conversation Mm. occurred. So I knew from a young age that this was the path I was on. My dad was always very encouraging and saying like, you would be really good in this business. Um, and some other people too had that same type of um, statement for me. And so I came right out of college into the practice. Um, and my dad, Ellis, I, I talked about him in person. I talk about him as Ellis. Here I've said my dad quite a bit. But Ellis, he, um, from the get-go, just having his estate planning mind, uh, he has a degree, uh, a law degree, and applies that to investments. Um so he was always talking about what the buyout would look like from 2010 when I started in the practice. And so I'd have these days of, oh, I don't know, I can't do this admin stuff any longer. I don't know if I'm doing it that well. Like maybe I don't belong here. And then we'd go to the whiteboard and he'd draw out how this how this um, arrangement would work, how it would be for me to purchase the practice and how the practice would fund it. And this would all be great. And I'd walk away from that conversation like, wow. And then also like, yeah, but I'm still an admin. Um, and so, yeah, you know, it, it's always been embedded in the conversation 
And that's totally his way of approaching life, of always looking for the next possibilities. Very cool. So, so, so help us understand then, what did this practice look like in 2010 when, when you first showed up? Yeah. So even being in insurance and investments only, he, Ellis had such foresight with it. Um, he came in in 1998 and, you know, TechRec and then 2008, 2009. So right from there, he wanted to make sure that when we did any type of investment with a client, we had flexibility and we weren't charging that upfront commission necessarily. Okay. And so even in 2010, when I came in, we were mostly C-shares and some managed accounts that were starting like new new accounts that were being added. That's where we went. So it was mostly you know, A-shares, insurance work, um, but the forward motion was heading towards C-shares and managed accounts. Okay. And and so what was the, I guess, sizing of the practice of like clients or I guess I don't know if you would measure by revenue since AUM wouldn't have, would have been a little wonky then because you were still in transition, but like mm-hmm. what was the size context of the practice, how, however you were, you were measuring it then? I would say that at that point, perhaps our revenue might have been around three hundred or four hundred thousand and not much recurring revenue in that. Okay. Um, and his vision was always to hit the million dollar mark before he sold, which we were inevitably able to do in twenty twenty one before he sold, which felt really good and And then how many clients was it at the at the time? in twenty sixteen was probably our high water mark, and we had right around fifteen hundred clients households. 1500 clients. Yes. So so is is Ellis just kind of a machine here? I mean, I'm just just math-wise like 2016 you're 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 about 18 years in at 1500 clients. Like that's the it's like two clients a week for 15 for 15 years yeah. before attrition. So like where do 1500 people come from? Yeah. So our family's background is Amish and Mennonite. And so if you think about niche niching down, mm-hmm. um, that wouldn't necessarily have been a thing that we talked about in the office, but there was always the conversation of, I speak Pennsylvania Dutch, therefore I connect with Amish folks really quickly. <laughs> and so the, and the referrals in that community are really strong too. So yes, I mean, he was a machine and also right place, right time. With the right skill set, um, you have a whole population of people that haven't really been treated well by financial services folks um, that want to come in and razzle dazzle and then leave. Uh, so he he's very relational in nature. Okay, interesting. And so so what 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 company was your father with the time? Like, I mean, he started like insurance insurance business. So with, with one of the mm-hmm. insurance companies. Yeah, we were within. Insurance BD, um, the Owen Equity Sales Company, and that would have been Ohio National was the parent company. Okay, okay. So, so clients then. Uh, I'm presuming then, like much small, at least relative to a lot of the industry today, like high volume of small accounts, just mm-hmm. that that sort of environment. Yes. So I, I just like I it, it reminds me. So I I I also started in the in the insurance side of the business. And I still remember when I started, like the, the most successful agent in that office who'd, who'd been doing it, I think he was he was almost 30 years into the business at that point. Uh, 
uh, he actually had two offices in the like in our in our branch location. One was his office that he was in, like very nice desk because he was top top producer in the branch. And then the second office were his client files. Like he had, oh he goodness. had, he had so many, and I mean, this is <laughs> 20 plus years ago, so it's all paper. He had yeah. so many client files. There was an entire office room just to house the client files and like wading through 1500 clients was just really brutal and time consuming in and of itself to figure out what, which of these clients do you actually want to spend time with? Who, who might have been a good client but has moved on to another place, who wasn't a good client but actually has become a good client because some changes in their life circumstance have happened and now they'd actually be a better fit. And and like that was still a really messy, challenging, time-consuming process. So did like did, was that showing up in the practice for you? Like was there some point where it began to shift from we're just adding two clients a week, 100 clients a year on an ongoing basis to saying, wait, maybe we don't need to be just adding, adding, adding. Maybe we need to be shifting or refining or winnowing. Like, Was there mm-hmm. some transition where you had to go from adding to, to subtracting? Yeah, I think the, the place where we started to get bottlenecked the most were simple IRAs. So when my dad, when Ellis would go out and he would um, get a new client, it was usually a business owner and small business, highly productive um, Amish or Mennonite folks with uh, some sort of manufacturing shop. Um, And so when that household number, that 1500, that includes, because of simple IRAs, that includes simple IRA participants. Yeah. And so- with our firm, just with the relational nature that we were, you know, I've heard other advisors say, oh, well then simple IRA, don't even count them as a personal household. But in that land, suitability still has to be maintained. Oh, yeah. Beneficiaries. You, like You absolutely have to maintain, yeah, you absolutely have to maintain like a full client file for every single yeah. one of those simple IRA participants. Mm-hmm. And let's let's just say, um, if we had one David Miller, we have ten David Millers because that's the way that <laughs> Amish folks, you know, there's very similar names and very similar last names, and so our files, yes, there, there was a little trickiness going into that. It's an interesting point. Like, just do you like what CRM do you use? Do you actually have a a CRM field for like David Miller one, David Miller two? <laughs> no, you learn to know people by their street. You know, you, it's no different than me going to a sandwich shop and then yeah, being like, "Oh, Liz, she always gets you know this yeah. sandwich." Um, you get to know people differently, and I I'll say that like with with those files, they were paperwork files. Ellis is an incredible relator, and you know, historically we've had team members that are incredible relators. And so maintaining a file with a bunch of notes isn't necessarily as important because some of that stays top of mind. Now, as we want to scale over time, not wanting to rely on that just relator side, um, it, it'll be important for us to, to find ways to uh, put that relational knowledge into a CRM. So what shifted? Because as I know, we'll, we'll We'll get into it more soon, but like the the business did not keep adding clients. You're fewer than fifteen hundred now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like, what what changed in this? Like, Ellis is a a, a growth machine in the mm-hmm. in the Mennonite community and having great relationships and driving all this activity and bringing in all these clients and opportunities uh, and growing the revenue. Kind of, but dot 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 like. Mm-hmm. S- 
something shifted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we had purchased a another practice of another advisor that had been affiliated with Onesco, and I had started working with those clients um, succeeding that advisor and was really gaining my ground as an advisor with a voice and feeling more confident. Um, I'll just say that you know with with Ellis's clients, it was more difficult for me to gain that footing simply because of the nature of the community where um, they might get the, you know, I'm a CFP, I'll answer their questions super detailed. And then they'll say, okay, well, have Ellis call me afterwards and and I'll run it by him yet. Um, So that dynamic for me was very dissonant. Once I got into my own book where I had succeeded an advisor and had more freedom to understand like who I am as an advisor, um, I started gaining a voice and you know, it was 2018, I think. I, you'll like this, but I attended two conferences. One was FA Women's Conference. I think that was in the spring. And the other was the XYPN Conference. Okay. Um, and it was the first time I realized like, oh, I belong in this business. And that's a big deal, which means that I can take this financial footing that I have, this advisor footing that I have, this advice footing that I have, and build something that I want because look at all these other people that are doing it. Um, and it was very heartening. And I saw from that moment forward, my desires, my drive, and the, what I wanted to shift in the practice started coming more to the surface. And I started having more of those conversations with Ellis about, you know, how can we shift this practice more? How can we make this um, not so service heavy, et cetera? So, so I'm struck I, I, I'm struck in the in that flow that notwithstanding kind of coming into the business and having an opportunity to sort of succession into into your father's business into Ellis's business that sounds like that he was totally on board with from day one because he, mm-hmm. he was whiteboarding it during the <laughs> during the admin stage uh, that your growth momentum came when you bought a second advisor's clients and worked with those instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's just, I was going to say just, I don't mean that in a, in a diminishing way. Like that's just the dynamic. Uh, Like, is that the parent child dynamic? Is that the, like, because everybody in the community knows you're Ellis's little girl because <laughs> they right. saw you because they saw you when, and they can't get past that. Right. Yes. And, you know, some of those conversations would even come into client conversations. And it was always from a place of like jovial laughter, but ultimately I was the daughter, he was the parent. Um, and I could not see myself as the assertive woman that I am. Um, and so when I had my own space, and I've seen this in other areas of my life, so this it's not unique here, but um, there's an independence within me that seeks to be like, I love the creative process. And so being able to have my own space to create in tandem with, with team, um, is really fun for me. And so it was my first time of like having what felt like a fresh palette of clients, of ways of being, uh, and introducing financial planning, introducing different types of conversations without having to get approval first. Um, and it's, it's not even that he wouldn't say, yeah, go for it. He probably would have said, yeah, that sounds great. Let's go for it. Um, but there's still that hesitation, you know, as the child and like, is this really okay? How's this going to be? 
So what changed when you acquired a, another advisor's clients is just they didn't they didn't have that history. They weren't being transitioned from Ellis to Ellis's daughter because you get stuck in this like referential <laughs> identity. Yeah. You yeah. can't be Liz. You have to be Ellis's daughter. Uh, when you when you acquire anybody's practice besides a family member's, that part at least goes away. You like you still have to establish yourself as the new advisor coming in and taking over the clients, but you don't have that dynamic, which mm-hmm. it sounds like was went went easier, went better for you. Yes. Also, I think as I've looked at my my brother is also in the business. I don't know if I mentioned that to you, Clinton. He and I now own the practice fifty fifty, um, and conversations we've had have been about you know, do you need to match the the personality and the way of being with clients as the advisor that you're succeeding, I say no. And with that book of business that we purchased uh, and that succeeding advisor, he was great. He had a completely different style than I did. My my dad, Ellis, and I have very similar approaches, very relational, uh, a little bit gregarious, um, willing to be emotive, etc. And so um, I'm not sure that it would have worked because people's expectations may have been benchmarked to the way that he did it. With this other advisor who is very data-driven, very analytical, pretty quiet, um, my style was a nice contrast to it. And so people, you know, they would know instantly <laughs> if if they wanted to stick with me. Um, and I see that with my brother also as he's taking over Ellis's practice, Ellis's side of the practice. Um He's got a different approach and clients appreciate that, you know? It's it's like a a different facet of the diamond. So I feel like the the fear a lot of the times is I have to show up the way the other like the old prior advisor did mm-hmm. because that's what the clients know and that's what the clients expect and if I don't show up the same way, they might they might not like me. They might not want me. They might not right. stick around, which is particularly problematic if it's an acquisition because I I paid. I pay, I paid to acquire the the yes. the revenue associated with that relationship. So having the revenue walk out the door is kind of economically problematic as well. Indeed. So, like, was that not a concern for you? Was just the the way the deal was priced and structured made that made that manageable? Like, I'm just I'm wondering where that that fear was or wasn't for you of you know if if you know if I show up as me and I'm different than the prior advisor, does that mean I'm going to lose some of the clients here? Hmm. It's interesting that you ask that. I don't think it was a conscious thought at that point. Okay. Um, what I do know for myself is authenticity drives everything for me. If something is inauthentic, if if I am posing or fronting in a certain way, it shows. Like you can tell, you can read it on me. Um, and so for me to morph myself and pretend to be like this advisor who was way more data driven than I am, um, it it would have been silly. <laughs> it would, yeah, you would have been able to read it. And you know, there are situations where I was incongruent, and I, like some of those clients are not with us anymore. And good because if I can't be my authentic self, then they're better served by someone else because they're not going to get the heart of Liz, which is where all my power is. And I guess from your end, just the like that was where it almost said like that's where some of the. The confidence building came for just getting momentum with clients yourself because you could, like, you actually got to be you and not Ellis's daughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I 
for better or for worse, like profit is not the first thing that comes to mind. And so even I, I recall one engagement with one of those clients that we purchased from that advisor that I started working with. And I tried to bring in different strategies, Roth conversions or um, monitoring their cost basis or, you know, all these, all these iterations. And they were already doing it. They were doing it on their own, uh, super bright people. And I realized, oh, they only want me to help them pick stocks. Well, that's not Liz hand. That's not going to be, that's not going to work. So I had that conversation with them and I said, hey, I don't think I'm the best fit for you, but let me find you another advisor. And um, I recall a peer that was like, what? You know, that was 2000, 2000 recurring dollars walking out the door. And, you know, we made an arrangement that that client parted, like we were compensated as we recoupled them with another advisor. Um, but for me, it's really important that I have a voice and that it matters to people. And if I'm not adding that value, I want to find someone who will. And and then how were you compensated though? I mean, is this broker dealer environment, you got to refer them to someone else at Inesco and and like there was a split rep code arrangement, some like a structure like that? Um, we just did a straight two times revenue, did not do a split code. Okay. But and like I will to, say to someone else in the in the in the BD, where just it's it's easier to do those transitions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. And there was someone I felt really confident about too, and it was neat to see um, that relationship okay. take off. I felt really good about it. But to to your point about split codes, by 2018, which I would say is the year where I really stepped in and saw like, oh no, I want to shift to this um, split code. Split codes <laughs> were the bane of my existence because it didn't make sense to me. Like, what is a split client? You hope they call the other advisor and the other advisor does all the work, but you get compensated for it or yeah. they're really your client and no, no, no. you the maintain first one. the relationship. The first well, of one. course. <laughs> <laughs> right. And in the environment we were in before we moved to Kestra, it was like left and right splits. And it made sense at the point of the beginning of the relationship. But the longer you got into that relationship, the more dissonance it created. Um, and our practice was so hard to figure out, like, what are we, what is our profitability? Cause you got this split code over here and that split code over there and they don't match and there's no real rhyme or reason to it. So, um, yes, I don't like split codes. And so if I'll say by that, like just, you know, lots of advisory firms that sell, you know, the whole practice or books of clients, like a, a segment of the practice. Just, I want to make sure I understand, like, this was just like an individual, like one client you're sending out, but you know where you're sending it. So you call the advisor on the other end and say, I have this client. It's really not a great fit for us. I think it would be a better fit for you. Would you like to acquire this one client? Mm-hmm. It's, it's $2,000 revenue. It's a $4,000 payment and mm-hmm. you'll have the ongoing client relationship from now on. Would you like it? Yep. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't say that's exactly what we've done every single time. It's been very, you know, being very highly relational. We're yeah, yeah. always looking sure, at, sure. from the client perspective, like what is the next step? There are clients that I've simply um, referred elsewhere and not requested compensation for that. There are clients that sure. we simply let go. But some, at least you, you know where it's going. And and mm-hmm. so I'm, I mean, just presuming like there was like, it's hard to do much legal paperwork for that as like a, a sale acquisition event because the lawyers are going to make all the dollars go away in 
in legal fees? Like, was this mm-hmm. essentially just a, a like a verbal agreement? Like, here's mm-hmm. the client's revenue. We're gonna we'll we'll refer it to you as an as an acquisition deal if you'll acquire it from us for this this going rate and. Mm-hmm. We 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 agree, and then the referral happens, and the money moves, and that's that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in this in this part of the world, Ohio, flyover state, um, there is high trust, <laughs> mm-hmm. and so a lot of our a lot of the transitions we've made, whether it was changing broker dealers or um, even statement of intent, like it was, it was a little bit more than a handshake deal, but. Um, built on high trust and not as many attorneys in the process. Okay. So just some relatively basic agreement just to document, like I'm referring the client and you, it generates this revenue and you'll owe me this dollars. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm just, I'm fascinated by it because I, I really, again, I, I mean, there's certainly all the advisors that sell practices. There are some that do like sort of partial book sales or I'm going to sell a segment of my client base that isn't a good fit for me anymore to another advisor. But just I, I hear so rarely someone just transitioning like, oh, clients, that's not a good fit. But but just to, to do it for remuneration, that just I'm 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 fascinated by that. And e- even including just down to like, yeah, you know, we just basically do it with a phone call and a handshake because mm-hmm. the legal costs won't make it worth more than that. But we're in a high trust space where I'm confident that everybody's going to do what they're supposed to do. And so Yes. You can get you can get compensated for, uh, you know, ch- generating generating an opportunity for someone else at that point. So that's that's mm-hmm. how that's how the client revenue flowed. So so I feel like there's sort of two two phases of the journey for you that you're describing. There's this like first, I guess almost three. Like there there's this first phase where you've come into the practice. You you start in the admin end and trying to and trying to work up to doing some planning work with clients, but they're Ellis's clients and the clients are having trouble to see you as anything besides like Ellis's daughter. Secretary is actually the word was given. Secretary. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. So so there's like a family like, there's like a family age thing and like a career title status thing. Yeah. Like, let's, just, yeah. let's just get all of it on there. <laughs> So, so then option two or like stage two is acquiring another advisor's practice into yours, which gives a client base that doesn't have that history of Ellis and you relative to Ellis in the business. So you get like a fresh start with them. Yes. And get to start building just like career confidence, advisor confidence and comfort. And then there's a third stage that came in 2018, after you started going to some conferences, so FA Women in the Spring, XYPN Live that fall, and seeing like, oh, there are a lot of other advisors that do this the way I do it. Like, I'm I'm really on a good track here. I really do belong in this business. Mm-hmm. That then becomes the stage of, okay, now I feel like I actually want to shape this a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Is that a fair characterization of kind of this this progression of how it how it evolved for you? Yeah, I would say that's a fair progression. I'll also say that um, I feel like I'm in a fourth stage <laughs> presently, or maybe more, who knows. But um, as of a couple of years ago, really, as Clinton and I purchased the practice, that has unlocked an even different stage um, And going through my own mindset work and really understanding how I tick has made me aware of a new offering that I want to incorporate into the practice of coaching. Um, 
and wondering how that will look. And so while I, those same conferences that I would go to in the past that I was like, oh, I fit in, uh, those conferences now I'm like, well, if I bring in coaching, like who am I as an advisor? Am I doing the financial planning thing? Well, yes. Um, And so I actually went to a conference recently, Shift, um, that occurred in San Antonio, I think it was the first one this year. And met some of those folks. And so I feel like I'm entering a new stage or phase. Interesting. So so I want to come back to that, but first is I I, I want to get, I guess, through like through through I guess I'll call it like through stage three before we get into stage four. So okay. you, you've so you've come back from the conferences. I'm like I'm feeling more confidence of like getting to really start assert my my desires and drive and vision of what I think this can look like. So is I guess where did the actual like succession planning transition planning with with your father start to kick in like is that sure. does does that crop up here was that already underway or or did that start showing up in this in this stage like okay dad i think clinton and i are ready to actually do this transition go ahead and step aside we're we're in no yeah Just we're go. ready we're ready now you can just to be clear no. you can now move out of the way we're ready <laughs> Um, so one great thing about Ellis is he sets an intention about timeframes for himself. And he kind of always had it in mind at age 67, he was going to retire or he was going to sell his practice at age 67. So at age 62, he sent a letter to all four of us siblings, his children, my siblings. Um, and it said, I will be selling my practice in five years. If you want any portion of this or you want to be considered in the process, you need to give me word before I turn 67. Otherwise, door is closed. Okay. Ultimately, my parents had the vision of all four of us children being in the practice, using our different skill sets, and really letting the practice be like the legacy of the family. Um, so we're nearing age 67, um, and he turned 67 in 2022. So it was 2021, and I was engaged with a life coach at that point, and she said um, something to the effect of, well, this process, you need to get clear on what you want as early as possible to work out the kinks of it. Um, And so we started at the beginning of 2021, really getting into um, the, the details of it. And that was, it was a difficult time to really pin down what do I want? What does Clinton want? What does Ellis want? What's best for the clients? What's best for um, the family, et cetera, and, and the team? Um, those are a lot of weighty conversations that can happen. Um, I was very present to places where I felt like I was being too overpowering or like taking advantage of. Um, and I think because it was a family dynamic, I could be more present to that and stay in relationship with my family versus, you know, if it's a third party, I might not necessarily think to that depth <laughs> to keep, right. to make sure that Thanksgiving dinners, we're all sitting down together still. <laughs> so. So, so I'm not even just, you're talking about like what, as you're pinning down, like what does Liz want? What does Clinton want? What does Ellis want? So the other two siblings were not interested, I'm presuming. Like that's, Correct. that's two out of four. Mm-hmm. So I guess just talk to us more about how that just how that deal flow, like how did it get structured for the two of you that wanted to come into the business? How, mm-hmm. how did it work? 
So we, Ellis, with his legal background, he drafted a whole document that was very well thought through that matched what he needed for his cash flow plan, what he wanted for the legal structure of the buyout. Um, And so we started with that. And then Clinton and I looked at that to see, you know, where are the places that don't feel right? And an example that came into it, um, there was an element that I wasn't sure what was happening. He had in the document that he wanted us to um, pay for part of the insurance premiums that he had maintained on himself um, for the rest of his life. And to me, I'm like, that's a long time. We don't know how long you're going to live. And if, if you've you know, I work with retirees. There's, you know, they're experiencing some of their friends passing away and there's this very, they're being confronted with their own mortality. And so he was like, oh, I'm not going to be along much longer anyway, around much longer anyway. And, and I was like, well, you know, you could live to age 100. And that's a, that's a pretty long time of me paying premiums. Yes. Yeah, like um, 30, 30, 33 <laughs> years, like a long, long time to make this make this commitment. I'm not quite sure what health insurance is in the 2050s here. <laughs> right. So, you know, when we drilled into what's behind this, his his expectation was that he was wanting to gift part of the practice to us. And then in turn, the life insurance would cover um, to make it equal with the siblings. And I, being fairly independent, <laughs> was set, stated like, I don't want you to gift me any part of this practice. I don't want any point in time for my siblings or even my mom to come back and say, hey, this was not a fair deal. So I was very sensitive to any place that there was discounting or gifting or, 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 um, because I wanted it to be fair from, from everyone's perspective. Um, so that was just one place where it was written on the paper that we were going to do it one way and we worked through that and then removed that from the deal. Oh, so so the so the insurance premiums here, like this wasn't health related. This was life insurance. This is life insurance, yeah. This was life insurance related. This was mm-hmm. I'm going to partially gift you the practice, but then you've got to pay some insurance, life insurance premiums, so that I can make your siblings whole. Mm-hmm. And your and your preference instead was like, no, just charge us full fair value for the practice mm-hmm. and get full dollars, and then you can divide whatever you don't use evenly among siblings because no one got any distorted transfers or gifts along the way. Just Right. You're, you're, you're made whole and what's left is left. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And in another area where there was some conversation around it. Um, so this, this book of business that we purchased that I managed, um, I was being paid on a commission basis for reasons that I don't want to get into, but like, it was important for me only to eat what I kill, except I didn't have a commission mindset. I had a fee-based mindset. And so there was a way when I was looking at the deal, I was like, oh my goodness, I didn't get compensated when I placed the business or all of these, you know, the years along the way, I didn't get that like upfront sales pop because I didn't want it. And then now I'm going to pay a premium for that just to purchase it to be my own. And so we talked about that and right-sized that, but in the process, um, it created conversation with Clinton and I of just like, well, how come you get that discount? I helped you when you were on your maternity leave and, <laughs> you know, took care of those clients for you, made sure all those things were placed. Um, and I wasn't given that same opportunity to have a book of business. Okay. So what does that mean? And we ended up just splitting that discount 50, 50. So it was part of both of our deals versus just mine, um, which felt really good and aligned for me. Interesting. So, so just trying to try process this. So you know, you're 
for the clients for the clients in the outside practice, you were on a commission basis within the practice. So I guess like you you know your your comp was a percentage of the first year revenue that was generated from those clients. Mm-hmm. So if you're placing them into more A shares and such, you know whatever it is five percent commission comes through, you get a piece of that, uh, and we're made whole. But instead of putting it into you know, a share business where you get a percent of the up the the whole four or five percent upfront. You're putting them into advisory accounts where you get a payout on a whole like one quarter of one percent in the first quarterly mm-hmm. billing. So there's no upfront pop, but right. now it's part of the recurring revenue of the business. So when you get down to the valuation stage later to buy it, you're buying the recurring revenue, right? Mm-hmm. You're you're buy you're paying for the buyout of of one percent annual fees, but you didn't get the original pop of the upfront on the commission-based business and you didn't get a rev share on the advisory business. You just got a really low upfront payout because you put it into advisory and then have to buy the advisory recurring revenue. I, I did get a rev share on okay. it throughout. So it wasn't quite as stark Okay. bad decision made by salesperson Liz, but <laughs> no. But, um, yeah. But the, the nature of it was lower payout mm-hmm. early, ultimately right. to pay for a larger amount later. So okay. we right and then, size that. And so, and so the way that you right size, it was just, you figure like this portion of the revenue is attributable to the fee-based clients mm-hmm. uh, uh, that I that I got from the other advisor that I didn't necessarily get get as much of a payout up, up front and ongoing. So the valuation on the, this portion of the clients needs to be discounted down just to make the rest of that, mm-hmm. the, the rest of those economics whole. Yeah. Okay. Which you then split the discount on that portion of the book with Clinton since you were both contributing to make this work. Yes. So, all right. So I guess sort of two, two, two following questions I have for this. So number mm-hmm. one, just, so what's it like negotiating with dad? Um, what's it like negotiating with dad? <laughs> you know, being from the Amish Mennonite background, we are not confrontational folks. Um, the the nature of community is that you don't rock the boat. Mm-hmm. So the process of negotiating what I want was very intimidating for me, even though my dad's stance was like, I'm open. I'm open to this conversation. I felt like personally, and it's my own, you know, introspective journey that I've seen of like, what does it mean for Liz to have a voice? What does it mean for Liz to assert what she wants in a place where, you know, especially women? do not have that voice historically in the community. Um, and so, yeah, it was very intimidating. There were periods of time where I probably wasn't the most pleasant person to be around. Um, and there was, there was a time where I just had requested from my parents, like, hey, there's so much going on for us right now in this conversation. I don't know that I'll be able to show up as the best daughter or as the best mom of your grandkids right now um, as we sort out this business thing. And just know that I'm approaching this business thing with all the heart and it's ultimately for everyone. I just, there's so many parts of me that are being pulled here. So like, that sounds just pretty challenging in, in practice. Like if it, if it was turning and tearing you that, that much, like what was, what was, what was pulling on it? Like what was, what was turning and tearing that much? For me, it was just the worry that if I asserted what I want, it would tear the family apart. And that is a heavy, heavy thing to carry. And what what was it that you wanted that felt so different from where they were that it 
was at, at risk of being this family rending desire. It's it's not even that what I wanted was so different. It's just the practice of speaking what I want. <laughs> I mean, okay. you have to you have to being a mindset coach. Like none of this is logical, right? I mean, it's it all stems from childhood and community background, et cetera, et cetera. And so, like Amish Mennonite communities, women are in the background. They are supportive to the family. They stay at home. They cook the meals. They clean the homes. They um, are of service. They eat last in community dinners. Like they're so so to assert myself was to put myself at the front of it, um, and it it felt unsettling. It felt not right for me. So I get that it's it's not like logical by any means, um, but it definitely was the mindset hurdle that I had to overcome in that stage of my work. And and I mean, what was the path to overcoming it and not r- relenting and taking a back seat and just going on g- going along for whatever journey Ellis originally wrote in the documents? Yeah, um, it's our personal clarity is so important, and so I had this image of what I wanted the practice to be and the decision making that I wanted to make with it, um, taking it more financial planning focused, raising fees, like a lot of different ways of scaling the practice a bit more. And I knew that getting the deal complete was me unlocking the door to what I wanted. And so you can you can get to that door of what you want a lot of different ways. For me, it was really important to stay in relationship with my family. And so the the way that I did it is through conversation and being willing to own my side of the street. So uh, knowing when I'm getting angry and knowing my what's what's going on inside of me is not related necessarily to today, but I'm interpreting it um, that way and imposing a lot of my own judgments and fears, et cetera, et cetera, on my family. Um, so just being hyper aware that uh, of what was going on for me internally. And then, how do you ultimately value a business like this? I mean, just mm-hmm. at some point, you've got to set a a dollar number like did mm-hmm. did Ellis have a number was there a benchmark you were looking at did you get a valuation like how we did yeah. yes so we in 2019 we moved broker dealer RAAs and at that point we got a valuation for that piece and then we got another valuation from FP transitions both times we used FP transitions um to get the growth there and we'd had some pretty rapid growth once we changed um, who are you affiliated affiliated with? And then we relied on their documents, their valuation. Um, and as long as it matched my dad's cash flow plan that he had for himself, then we were good with the valuation. So you you used FP transitions to do the valuation. The math the math worked for Ellis, so that that was that. Yes. Okay. And and can I can I ask like just what did valuation or valuation multiples come in at? Just because I'm cognizant, you have like you've got some insurance business, you've got big accounts, you've got small accounts, you've got recurring revenue, you've got like old trails. Or I just I'm envisioning the the composition of the revenue of the practice is complex. Mm-hmm. So, uh, like, how did that end out getting valued? Like, did each little piece get valued on its own, and then it adds up to what it adds up to? How, like, how did you get to a number? We used their their benchmark valuation, which is about two times revenue, but then backed out certain areas where we either Clint and I were building, Ellis wanted to compensate us for sweat equity 
or that that area, that one little piece that I told you about right. um, with the compensation. The other piece, now that I'm thinking about it, um, we took the snapshot date from the first valuation to the second valuation. And one thing, as Clinton and I, as we changed broker-dealer RAAs, we noticed with Ellis that he was much less interested in driving the decisions of the business. And so he had given us fairly full reins to make the decisions that we wanted to with the firm at that point. Um, And so with the rapid growth that we had experienced, we talked about like, how do we want to split that up? Um, And so he did give a, a, like a sweat equity type of discount for um, a portion of that growth. I want to say it was a third of the growth that we had from 2018 to 2021 when we got those two snapshots. Okay. The, the idea being like, I'm, you were, you were sweat equity contributors to a big portion of this last stage of the growth in particular. So we're going to use like a, a blended valuation number of the two, which pulls the valuation number a little bit more in the direction of the 2019 valuation. So you don't feel like penalized as it were for having dosed so much to grow the business since the broker dealer transition and then Mm -hmm. having it just be more expensive for you. Mm Yes. Yes. Okay. Was that it? Just curious. Like, was that at your bequest, or was that his his desire? Like, that was his it? desire. Okay. And you know, in that time period, he and my mom did more um, like snowboarding, and so they were out of the practice more. Um, so it it made sense to us too. The amount that he gave to us, I again like thinking about it from all sides. I was like, don't just give away sweat equity for sweat for sweat equity's sake. Like, make sure it makes sense that it's not you know. This is ultimately your business and you're taking the risk. So, yeah. So I'm I'm struck though. So it sounds like it like it was very challenging in going through some of the negotiating with family because family and community and upbringing and all those all those mm-hmm. all those challenges, but the the challenge wasn't necessarily about the valuation per se because that was third party and sounds like everybody was reasonably comfortable with the number that came in from the third party. So it, it, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. It doesn't sound like the like the negotiating the back and forth wasn't necessarily valuation dynamics. It was it was other parts of the of the transaction, the deal, right? The mm-hmm. the the life insurance and mm-hmm. and adjustments like that. Mm-hmm. Yes. So so what else? I said for like were there other things? That were that were blocking points that were tough to get through in a in a family transaction like this. The, the, I think the other piece was what was Ellis's role in the firm after selling the practice. And on one hand, Clinton and I want to be taking over the clients, the client work, and Ellis wants that too. But then, what is the role that he has? I think that took a little bit of conversation and his compensation during that time too. Um, he wanted it to be fair and and like there's the element of how much do you want to be holding your parent accountable <laughs> to the work that they're doing like that gets a little dicey right uh-huh so that was a conversation that took some some time to sort through so, so his main role now just i am yeah, what did you arrive at <laughs> yeah yeah what, um, like what did you arrive at yes so he manages our portfolios he does a lot of the research part of what we present to clients and writing with that. So especially with the extended market turbulence over the last year, um, he wrote some just really sound articles that helped people feel really um, 
I almost used the word safe, watch out compliance. No, um, just felt more secure and willing to, to hang in there. Um, and that's really valuable for us. And then the handoff process was another place where we wanted him to be actively involved in. Um, and I'll say like, not everything has panned out the way we thought it would. And also we're fine. So, you know, you, you go through those conversations and you negotiate how you think it's going to be. And then it might be easier to transition a client than having some five-step process. So I'm cognizant that through, through this transition the past few years, you said that you changed broker-dealers as well. You went, I guess, from Ohio National Unesco World to, to Kestra. So what, what led to that change? Mm-hmm. Like why, why the broker-dealer shift? Yes. A, a lot of reasons. The main ones were, one, we couldn't get a good handle of what our business looked like, the reporting the partnering, the the business management piece was just difficult with the way that they gave us data. Um, and then you partner that with all of the splits and rep code differences. It was just really hard to get our arms wrapped around. What is our part of the business? Um, so that was one piece. Another was we felt like that at Onesco, we were very much more managed account financial planning focused, and they hadn't built out that part as well. Um, their pricing was pretty high on that. So we got a nice discount when we shifted to, for our clients, when we shifted to Kestra uh, within the managed account platform, Investnet, um, just by economies of scale. Um, and you know, being in that world, everybody, when you're in your own context of doing business, that's your context. That's what you understand. And so the conferences, you would be having conversations with people about sales and insurance and you know features of policies, and it wasn't invigorating for the direction we were going as a firm. Um, we just had a different vision. And so when we were looking at the different options available, landed with Kestra, it's been a great fit. And the advisors are much more aligned in their practice with the way we are. We didn't feel like a big fish in a small pond from the way of just doing managed uh, managed account business. Um, many advisors use managed accounts. In fact, that's what the yep. predominant number of people there, that's their main focus of business. And they have legacy life insurance or mutual fund business. So it was just like our people. So, so, on, the, so on the UNESCO side, so I guess if I'm hearing sort of two big themes, one just cost a platform, like you're you're doing more managed account business, but because Onesco's roots were Ohio National Insurance, like just their managed account platform wasn't as big, which means it tends to be more expensive. So when you go to Kestra and they've got more size and scale on the investment platform, just like platform fees, like managed account platform fees mm-hmm. went down. Mm-hmm. So is is that like literally the managers you were using charge less through Kestra than your old firm be, because of the, the the size and scale there? Or is it like there's a managed account platform fee? Managed account platform pay? fee. Yes. So what were the, can I ask like, what were the platform fees? I want to say they were <laughs> maybe 40 bips or so, and okay. then they dropped to 17. But those, those could not, I mean, they could be loosely in the area of each. Okay. Fair, fair enough. But something that neighborhood. So like not, not trivial when you when you may shave like twenty bips off the off the platform fee. I mean, if you're predominantly managed accounts, that's essentially like 
a 20% of revenue scrape on top of the BD platform mm-hmm. that just like vanishes when you change platforms. Yeah. Yeah. Which is not a not a trivial amount of money as the dollars add up. Mm-hmm. So so I guess just why why Kestra and how did you find them? I mean, there's so many independent broker mm-hmm. dealers out there these days. Like why why Kestra and how did you find them? Okay. You'll have to help me out with the name of the person that was on your podcast that essentially mm-hmm. helped matchmake people to their BDRA that they moved to. Do you recall? Uh, John Henshin? Yes. Yes. Okay. So I heard that podcast and I was like, oh, I want to have a conversation with John Henshin. You'll note that I get things done through relationship, uh-huh. which is not all that dissimilar for my clients. So anywho, um, so had a conversation with him. He looked at our business. We didn't really know what the scope was. Again, our context is one very specific area yeah. of financial services. Um, so he looked at the makeup of our investment accounts for clients, the types of products that were in there, and ultimately where we wanted to go, and then narrowed it down to a three, three BDRAs. Okay. And Kestra just felt like a really good cultural fit for us. I really appreciated the vision that um, James Poor has with the firm and how um, the emphasis is on the independent advisor and their support of the independent advisor. I liked that their platform, um, that they were looking into tech improvements, which was not available at our previous firm. And when they discussed like uh, us partnering with them, they also discussed us decoupling with them, which felt really freeing to me of this, like, Mm. it's not a black box. I'm going to be here forever necessarily. And maybe I will, I don't know, but just the idea of like, we've got our own platform, but you'll want to retain your red tail so that you have your own records to plug in. Mm. Um, And that felt really healthy to me. Okay. Interesting. So, so that, that whole fascinating mental dynamic of like, if we show you how easy it is to leave us, it actually makes you want to join us. And then you may never leave because right. you're actually happy with what we're doing, <laughs> which you only came because we made it so easy to not stay and then <laughs> earn your business anyways. Yes. yes. Very cool. Uh, do you do you recall offhand, like who, who else was in the running that like wasn't checking the box for you? Um, I had conversations with Commonwealth and Cambridge. And then there were two smaller ones that I didn't, I, I don't recall the name, but I remember one was, um, it's just the model I didn't really like. And that was where the advisors were part equity owners. All the advisors owned the BDRAA, okay. which is cool. I, like, I kind of like it. But what I noticed is when I went on to all of their tech stuff, it was not to the caliber that I wanted. And I thought, oh, like these advisors all have to agree to use their profitability to improve their tech. So uh-huh. am I wanting to be the person that's like, hey, reduce your profits, let's invest here. No, I don't want to expend that effort. I want someone that's already got that mindset going and is investing that way. So interesting. So so that that dynamic of I don't I you know it's neat to own a thing, but I don't want to have to get every single other advisor in the firm on board with my desire to see the platform reinvest in itself. I'd rather have a platform that is just owned by shareholders that has to win our business. And mm-hmm. it does so because we're going to pressure them to make tech investments mm-hmm. and reinvest their own margins. And they can decide to do that. And if they don't, I'll just vote with my feet. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, out of curiosity, like what, you know, Commonwealth and Cambridge are also like fine, reputable 
mm-hmm. independent broker dealers as well. Like what what tilted you towards Kester or, or or away from them? Like were there distinguishing factors about what what clicked or didn't click just for you in your context? It was more of the pull to Kestra. Um, okay. I really like the culture there. I I like the um, there's like a work hard, play hard type of mentality and like a pursuit of excellence, but also the reminder that we're all human. And so the connection, this is the other piece that was really important to me was um, instantly when I went and visited their office, you know, I had connections to all the department heads and I could relate to them. And I didn't feel like that. I'm super sensitive to this phantom image I have of financial services, which is the dude with power suit, with power tie and uh, sticks to the numbers, which is so polar opposite of me. Um, I didn't get that vibe there. And I felt like I could really relate with the department heads and actually reach out to them. And so I've had such, um, it's been really helpful for me as we've been getting established with them over the last five years to be able to reach out to some of those, even if it's the COO, Chris Chester or, um, Julie Peoples or whomever, just to be able to be like, hey, this is not going well for us. I need someone to help me with this. So so what's the what does the practice look like today? Like where where is the business now? Yeah. So today we have about 146 million of assets under management and okay. a client household count of 522. Okay. So uh so we're like the other thousand ish clients go. <laughs> so yeah. you're you're at you're at a little over five hundred today. I think you you said you were you were peaking close to fifteen hundred in twenty sixteen. So mm-hmm. six or seven years and about a thousand clients aren't here anymore. So what uh where'd they go? Um so one piece that was important for Clinton and I that I did not mention uh earlier in our succession was that we did not see a future of doing retirement business, retirement plan business. So um, 401ks, simple IRAs, we were not interested in continuing that business on. Um, And so we sold that business. We packaged it up and sold it to the firm that we left when we were at Onesco, our branch office, which we we retained really good relationship with them as we were leaving. um, Great relationships kept up, you know, strategizing even with them occasionally. Um, And so we knew that if we were wanting to be out of that business, we wanted to partner our businesses that we had been managing um, their retirement plans with someone that would handle it just as well as we did. And um, so we sold that part of the business. Again, simple IRAs were the bulk of that client household count, um, all of the participants therein. Um, So that really helped with the household count. Oh, interesting. So, because um, I'm assuming, because that 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 was the world of we opened a simple RA for uh, you know a, a small business with 11 employees. So now mm-hmm. we've got 11 simple IRA accounts and mm-hmm. you know 11 client households because each one needs their suitability because it's a simple IRA. So each mm-hmm. one has their own brokerage account. So we've got to deal with it for all of them. So uh, that whole side of the business just got packaged and sold. So how many? Like, what was the clients and an asset base of that? Do you recall at least approximately, like, how much of the business that was? Um, I don't recall how many households that was, but it was about $60 million of asset center management that we okay. packaged and sold. Okay. 
So I mean, that's a sizable. That's yes. a sizable chunk. I mean, that was a quarter, a third ish of the business or more was mm-hmm. was the retirement side of this high volume of clients. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I guess I'm just trying to make this timeline. So th- this got sold uh, before you left Onesco, before you started doing the succession plan with with Ellis. No, not quite. So we left Onesco in 2019 and joined Kestra. Okay. Um, and we sold the retirement plan business at the beginning of 2022. And we timed it to occur, you know, five five business days before Clinton and I purchased the practice from Ellis. So the proceeds from that sale also reduced our um, buyout cost from Ellis. So you sold, all right, so a few things. So you sold the retirement business like back to your old friends at Inesco, but mm-hmm. we're like, we're two to three years after you've left. Just mm-hmm. you kept good relationships and yes. could call them back to say like, does someone want to buy this, buy this small business retirement plan back from us? And and they were ready to do it because you still had a good relationship and they, they were familiar with the space. Yeah. They had a 401k specialist. They still have a 401k specialist on staff and- we also patterned the way that we did our retirement plans to the way that they did because we were affiliated at the time that they were set up. And so right. it's an easy transition. It's not like there's going to be a big upset amongst the businesses. They get to retain their same structure. And so and so I want to understand the the flow of this. So so the 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 retirement plan business sale closes five days before the rest of the the transaction. So mm-hmm. so if I'm flowing that right, that essentially means like Ellis monetizes that portion of the business mm-hmm. and then only sells you what's left at that at that point. It's like you and Clinton don't participate in that sale beyond you don't then have to go buy it and service it or buy it and go repackage it and sell it yourself. Like Ellis essentially did, you know, two two partial transactions of the business, a $60 million retirement plan business sale to the old Onesco branch and the other. 60 or 70 percent of the business of of whatever it was that that got sold to you and Clinton so mm-hmm. from his end like he cut he cut two deals to do two pieces of the transaction mm-hmm. yeah and it was really nice for him just as I think about you know from the financial planning perspective he got an upfront pop because he got the buyout from that from the retirement plan business and then for us he structured a longer um, buyout so it's mm. a nine year nine year buyout Oh, interesting. So it was it was it was a pop of dollars for the retirement uh, for the retirement sale because I guess just he negotiated a faster payment or they could they could make a more lump sum, mm-hmm. uh, and then that let him negotiate your portion longer. Yep. Yes. Worked really well. Uh, yeah, I'm struck by that as well because I do see a lot of a lot of advisors acquire practices that candidly have like. A portion of the clients, you know, a portion of the of the business that they're kind of excited about, and a portion that they're not so excited about. Like you acquire it, and he's like, "Well, I guess after I acquire this, I'm gonna have to figure out what to do with it. Maybe I'll keep it. Maybe I'll hire an advisor to support it. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll sell a portion of it off." And there's just like you have to buy the whole thing and then start repackaging it into what you want it to be. And so it's, I'm 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 fascinated that you did it the other way around, which is like. No, you know, offense, Dad, but like, can we just buy the part that we actually want to buy? And mm-hmm. you could find someone else to sell, to sell the rest of it to. Obviously, good news you you know, you had some good existing relationships to find a buyer for the retirement plan portion. So it, 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 it's not like you had to shop it on the open market and go through the entire process. Right. Uh, but just, I think it's an interesting 
contrast to say, like, no, we just like we didn't buy the portion we didn't want. We had the seller sell it to someone else, mm-hmm. and we just bought the part that we wanted to to focus on. Like that's, uh, I, it seems relatively straightforward, but it is really rare that I ever hear anyone actually structure the transaction that way. So help me understand what the business looks like now in terms of just like what are you. Like, what do you do and who are you trying to serve at this point? You're, you know, you're, you're, you're down this more focused, like 500-ish clients, 150 million of, of, of AUM, give or take whatever the market's doing in any particular day. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, is, is this where you want to be? Are you growing from here? Are you still trying to winnow it down further because you actually still don't even want that many clients and there's more to transition? Like, like where, where does it stand relative to what? where you're going and what comes next. Mm -hmm. So our next step is to really build out our service model for the tiers of clients. That's something that we'll be focusing on in Q2, Q3, Q4, however long it takes this year. Um, the, the, The vision that I have is integrating coaching into the process of financial planning, um, specifically for women retiring often alone, um, it's that independent woman that's making the decision but doesn't have a financial thinking partner. Um, and so as I think about that, it's not necessarily that we're wanting to winnow down further the number of clients, but I, I don't know that yet. <laughs> I got to get a grasp of like who's fitting in what tier of clients and how much we're servicing them. But ultimately, every decision paves the way for the next level of clarity that I have. So where I want to go, I'm not fully sure yet. I know who I want to serve, how, who we want to serve. Both Clinton and I are on board with this um, as, as far as the, the group that we're growing, um, but getting clear on what the makeup of the 522 clients are currently, what they expect from us, what we expect from them, the pricing structure, et cetera. Um, that's going to be the next iteration to provide the next level of clarity. I I really like the the way you frame that uh, every decision paves the way for the next level of clarity. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I feel like that's I feel like that's oddly redeeming to say like it's okay if you're not completely totally clear on what the exact end state is. Like mm-hmm. just get clear on what the next step is and do the next step. Mm-hmm. And then decide what the next next step is from there. Yeah. And it's honestly, it's how I approach financial planning too. That that same kind of iterative approach, like mm-hmm. let's let's just figure out what your next step is. Mm-hmm. So I guess I like you know playing devil's advocate. I mean, I'm just wondering, like, is there is there a challenge though if you're not clear on like where you're going in the long long run? Right? I'm, I'm so reminded of the, like the the Stephen Covey aphorism that you know if if you're, yeah start with if, the you, if like yeah and, like if you know, if you you know, if you don't put the ladder against the right wall in the first place, you just climb up the wrong ladder faster, right? Like that whole, that whole sort of phenomenon. So it's like, how, how do you balance that if every decision paves the way for the next level of clarity, but you don't necessarily want to go really far down a road to then find out like, wow, we've spent a long time iterating in completely the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. Or do you just accept that that's a risk and then we'll, we'll iterate from there to get back to where we wanted to be? Well, I, I can accept that it's a risk. The short side of that is that um, profitability targets are not happen, don't occur at a fast speed. Right. And am I okay with that? 
Yes, because it's it's a lot of pressure to put on yourself that I have the exact thing that I'm going to when there's so much um, detail in in the midst. And especially as being in the the people business, people are messy. Like it can be about four steps down the road at this point. Um, and so then I know the next several iterations. And it doesn't feel like the ladder on the wrong wall unless the current step I'm doing, I'm not taking the, the best first step for that, which is usually a mindset issue. I run into this with Limitless. Actually, just building our website, which we're in the middle of right now, changing it. Um, and we know we want to serve women retiring alone. So what does that mean for our website? And so I get in and I, I'm like, I'm pretty creative. That's that's an understatement. I'm very creative. Um, and so I like hammer out the whole website. The the ladder was on the wrong wall when I didn't start with my clear message. And in Limitless, we have this messaging wheel process. I knew I needed to start there, but I had so much resistance to that. The piece I'm wondering and as you as you raise that is just as you said, like your your roots are in this Amish Mennonite community and you're talking about you know, empowering often alone financially successful women who don't have a financial thinking partner, like that whole nature feels not necessarily traditional messaging to basically your entire existing client base. Mm-hmm. Right. Is that a worry unto itself that like your clients are going to come to the website and seem you'd be see that you seem to be doing something that's very different than what they got to know you through what your dad originally was doing? Because that's still the journey for a lot of them. Mm-hmm. That has been a fear that I have overcome from being in community with other advisors who have gone into a new niche. I often hear that it is a fear that is not substantiated, that clients are often fine with the direction that you're going so long as you don't forget them in the process. And I think the way that we go about our work is so much in service of clients that <laughs> um, it, it's not a it's not a fear for me. Yeah, I I'm always struck by by the like knowing a lot of advisors who've made that change. I, I mean, as you said, like e- everyone, air quotes, like everyone has the fear. If I start focusing the business in a new direction, are my existing clients going to get uh, you know up pissed and upset and leave and like storm out the door because I've I've said I'm going in this new direction that's not them. And then when you actually like do that and have the conversation with them, like they don't they don't get upset and angry. You're going in a different direction. They get fearful because usually the first question is like, well, mm, mm-hmm. if Liz, if that's what you're doing now, like, do we still get to be your clients? Because mm-hmm. we like we liked working with you. And mm-hmm. so as you said, like as long as you take care of them and don't forget them in the process, like they don't really care what you're doing. Like they care about themselves. Yeah. Is there some vision or clarity of just where this is going in the long run of of like what what you want the business to be now that you know you and Clinton have the business you uh, I guess Ella's still around a little bit but like you own it you get to set it now mm-hmm. so like where where is it going the direction that I see at this point in time is um, integrating more financial planning where compensation makes sense. Um, and so I've kind of split up our clients into three ideas. I haven't put people in categories yet, but three ideas. One is foundations, one is flow, and one is flourish. And foundations are the folks that um, are still mutual funds and life insurance. Um, they're not really engaged with us in any more, in any holistic conversation. They're not engaged with us on a 
year over year basis. It's kind of just whenever they need attention. Okay. So they sort of are, are call like our, our legacy transactional kind of clients. Like mm-hmm. they needed a thing. We did the thing. We still service the thing. Mm-hmm. They're not really in an ongoing holistic financial plan, but like we did the thing, we serviced mm-hmm. the thing and they want another thing. We can, we can help them with the other thing, but otherwise yeah. they're, they're, they're kind of hanging out on their own. Yeah. And they, they still consider us their financial advisor. And when something comes up that they need help with, then we will transition them to a different portion of a new client here. Or if we're not the right fit, then we'll find them a new advisor. Um, but oftentimes where our client base is sitting is more in the age 45 to 80 range. And so in that foundations, as part of the decoupling with clients, that thousand dollars, excuse me, that thousand clients that have, are no longer with us. Some of that was retirement plan business. And some of those were under the age 45, hadn't really engaged with us fully and compensation wasn't at a place that was sustainable. Um, And so they got kind of a, a dear John letter. Um, but then also if they desired to be recoupled with another advisor, we provided that referral um, for them and even made a connection if they wanted that. But um, so as I think of that foundations layer, it's it's those people who are older than 45, haven't fully engaged with us. They're going to hit a life event soon enough that um, they want to re-engage and we'll be open to that if it's the right fit. Um and then the flow is more financial planning focused. Um, they appreciate some financial strategy, but are not interested in coaching or any type of um, deeper transformative work. Uh, and so building out the model there to have ongoing good conversations with them over time that get their financial planning and investment needs met. Um, and then the, the flourish category is one, that's where I'm, not sure exactly how it's going to look, but I'm, it's right where I'm at today. Like looking at um, potentially building out a group coaching program within it, um, topical based that are the places that are common where clients get stuck in not implementing a financial plan. So why aren't you going to the estate planning attorney to draft those documents? Okay, let's look what's underneath there and tease that out. Um, this is part of my, I'm in process of getting certified as a life coach. And so just integrating that in to the practice. Um, and then the possibility of one-to-one coaching for those clients in like a pass type form, like you have two or three passes a year for one-to-one coaching. So uh, I, I guess this help me understand how that, how that flows up. Like, is this is this like a higher priced, more expensive tier? Are these pre like premium kinds of services or just it's just different in a more coaching y, less financial planning y context in the first place, because they're they're just in a different place and need need different services. Mm-hmm. So the we have a minimum fee has to be hit before they would have access to and recognizing I'm still building this. So understood. Understood. <laughs> We're, we're, ju- we're, ju- we're just paving the way to the next level of clarity. I understand. Right. So, um, yeah, there's a certain asset level that's met. And just as we have engaged with clients over the years here in the Midwest, um, I found that those high savers are very hesitant to spend their money in retirement. And oftentimes I feel like the yeah. financial services industry does a disservice to them because – of retaining the assets and getting them not to keep spending and, oh, 
be worried about, you know, all the things that will come down the road. But what happens is their life satisfaction goes down and they have all this money that they've spent so many years thriftily saving and they won't allow themselves to retire at the time frame that their body or their they desire to retire. And once they're in retirement, they might skimp on just the joy of full-time freedom and financial freedom. And so um, there's a conversation I've been developing over the years of this Midwestern money mindset that's based in farming um, that always is looking to have seed money for the next um, year of cropping. And that breaks down when you're in the retirement phase because you need to start spending money as to enjoy the life that you have. And so helping clients work through those um, those mindset blocks, really, those are the conversations that I love. You can probably hear it in my voice. My energy yeah. level just skyrocketed. Yeah. Um, I love those conversations. And especially with women that are in retirement, especially if they haven't um, engaged with the financial component before, this is a place where they can enter in the conversation and really shape out what their financial goals are because we're having a different level of conversation. And then I can kick that to Clinton if he's doing the financial planning to really map out what the plan looks like. So as you've done this transition and went from kind of like working in the practice to acquiring in your own set of clients to getting confidence to start building the practice to actually acquiring it uh with with your brother and and owning it and sort of being in the the owner's chair now mm-hmm. so I'm curious is like what's what surprised you the most about building and and running an advisory business now that you're now that you're in the owner's seat hmm. um how much my own money story crops up <laughs> so frequently or my it's really it's not my money story um, it plays into it, but I, from a childhood situation that I had, an illness that I had, I missed out on some of those foundational years of math and English and, and, and. Um, and so there's a level of lack of trust of my own ability in some of the basics of math, even. I'm a financial planner. I've done calculus. Um, like, obviously, I'm skilled at math, but in my mind, I don't associate with being skilled with math. And so in every layer of my work, I have been confronted by this fear of not being smart enough to do the thing, whether that was my initial like first meetings with clients, um, studying for the CFP, the series seven, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like all along the way, I'm confronted with this fear of not being smart enough. And you know, becoming the business owner, it's a new layer of that, of knowing the numbers of the business, even, you know, preparing for this conversation that we had today. I had a lot of fear around it. I had to work through it with a coach <laughs> just to be able to like dig into my numbers, pull them out and not worry that uh, it showed something negative about me. Um, so there's there's this continual surprise that I experience with myself of being able to work through, to, to be confronted by this story, this old story of I'm not smart enough, and then to overcome it and um, really lean into what's next. And and just what's what's brought you to the point where you you are overcoming it or feeling like you're making some progress in overcoming it? Because I mean, just I know there are people like that 
that will have a version of that struggle and mm-hmm. and 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 it wins right and it it overcomes them and they get mm-hmm. and they get stuck there you you're uh as you've noted like it's still a continual struggle so obviously like it hasn't vanished in the background or anything but you 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 seem to be winning winning more often than losing against it well, so you- what's like what's what's bringing about the 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 success in being able to overcome it um you know any hardship that we have in life we have resilience around and so i can get hung up in what was liz what was liz that she didn't have those foundational math courses and so sometimes she gets tripped up when she's adding or multiplying or 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 um i can i can stay there i can hang out there or i can reframe that and say wow because i didn't lean on the numbers part of math i have come into this practice from the fully relational side and i get my clients and i don't i don't need to build out systems or processes that prove something when i fully understand who my clients are and what they need um and so in any of those moments we have the opportunity to look and see what's going on for us um when we're feeling when we come up into a hardship or a hard conversation or being called out or whatever um to look and see what's there for us and shift the story. And that's why I love mindset work. Um, I've been engaged with a mindset coach consistently since middle of 2020, and it has made all the difference for me. So what was the low point on this journey for you? Mm. (laughs) Yeah, I'm feeling the emotion on this one. Um, The lowest point for me was 20, it was 2014. We had just purchased this practice and it's like my moment to shine, right? Because I got the, these clients yeah. that I'm going to work with. My dad has taken a huge financial risk for me to be able to do this. This advisor is counting on me to take care of his clients. Simultaneously, I'm becoming a mom. And Congratulations. So <laughs> yeah. So I recall it was like a couple of months into this engagement. And I was at lunch with some advisors. And someone said something to me that I don't know if what they said was like pure truth or if I just misinterpreted it. Either way, I felt very condescended to. And I was ticked off. I carried that the rest of the day and I got home and I was in the shower and I just like screamed. I was so ticked off at how difficult it is to be a young female in this practice, in this area of the industry. And um, later that week, I am, it might've been like two days later, I went to this 401k review. So I was at this big company and I am trying to prove myself. I've got my little suit coat on and I'm trying to be like relational, but also super professional because this is a corporate space. And I come away from those conversations, like I get to the end of that day and I'm like drained because it's not the type of conversation I want. And I go to hand back something to the HR person. And I noticed they were looking at me kind of oddly. And I didn't know what it was, but I, you know, covered over it and I kept going and um, got to the bathroom and realized that, uh, sorry to be a little graphic, but I was bleeding and it was showing on my khakis. And I was so embarrassed. And when I got home, I realized I was having a miscarriage. Oh my God. And so like at that moment, I felt like the two pieces that were super important for me at that stage, motherhood and career, 
were at their all-time low because I was failing at both. And I think that's one place that women uniquely experience in this practice, in this, in this industry, is having to sort through what it means, if, if they decide to become a mother, what it means to become a mother, which is its own thing in society, an own thing internally, and then also stepping out into their own as an advisor. And to me, it was like horrifying experience, so embarrassing. That person, that HR person had no idea what was going on for me. They just noticed uh, something very awkward. <laughs> and um, But it also was a turning point for me too of just like <sighs> continuing on and looking for what what resonates for me, what is most authentic for me. And yeah. So help us understand more how it was a, a turning point, like what changed for you in that in that moment or in, in the aftermath? I wouldn't say it's immediate, but um, in both places, I saw this this way of like interpreting how I was supposed to be. Like, I will say, just not to like sugarcoat this, that it took several years to sort it out. But I see that was that was the market low of sorts. Um, <laughs> and from that point, I was very resolute that like I'm going to make this my own. I'm going to figure out motherhood. And I'm going to take a day off, which I did for, I think, five years, take, take a day off a week and be with my kids because that's important to me. And then in the work, I'm going to do this the way that I want. It was, it was very much an ownership piece for me of just what is it that I want? Stop looking externally for what the next step is. Start looking internally for what I need, what I want, what makes me happy. Interesting. And so, and so through much of that growth stint then you were splitting four days on at work as you're building career and clients and one day off per week to be with family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so what else do you like know now that you wish you could go back and tell you from 10 years ago as you're in the early stage of this? Hmm. I wouldn't change how much I did networking. I I love that part of me. I definitely spent a lot of time talking to other advisors to see what they were up to, to understand kind of my my place. But the piece that I would state is don't put so much emphasis on what they are doing. It's helpful. And also, like, we can be our own guide in the process. Um, there's a way that I was defaulting to everybody else has the answers and I'm missing them. And if I could have paused there and said, okay, that is just a story that I have, that they have all these answers. Not all that dissimilar from why you have this podcast, like thinking about what's underneath the success of others. Um, just recognizing that my my process is an okay process. It doesn't have to match the external journey. I guess that's part of, as you said earlier, like why you've been focused into mindset and having a mindset coach is trying trying to bring about those shifts for yourself. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And so can I ask like where where have you gone for mindset, like work and help and coaching? Like where where does that come for you? Mm-hmm. Um I first engaged with Elise McConnell. She was the mindset coach uh with Limitless. She unfortunately passed away um about a year into our engagement. And through that process, I was like, wow, these are fascinating conversations. I would love to have more of these with my clients. And I had asked her 
where it was that she um, was trained. She was trained through accomplishment coaching. And so I went through their year program and simultaneously was in Limitless, which has the mindset component. Um, I finished the certification process through um, accomplishment coaching and offered to Limitless that, you know, not that I would ever replace Elise because she was so special to so many people. Um, But if I could be of service to the advisors, I would love to be the mindset coach there. So I am now mindset coach with Limitless. I have my own um, individual one-to-one mindset coach and I offer mindset coaching to others. Very cool. So any other advice that you would give to younger, newer advisors looking to become planners and get started today? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just struck by how how much came about for me in the moments where I found my people. And so mm-hmm. getting involved in some of those organizations like FPA or NAPFA or XYPN or your BDRIA, like really getting engaged, find the people that you resonate with most um, because there's so many ways to do the work of a financial advisor and you'll find the way that, that works for you. And that's where you bring the most value to the people that you serve. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And just one of the themes that always comes up is the, the word success means very different things to different people. And so you've had this wonderful path of, of building the business successfully and, and transitioning it to what it gets to be become next and already is noted like much, much larger than it was just a few years ago. And so the, the business is on a great journey of, of success in its own right. How do you define success for yourself at this point? Yes, that wonderful question. Um, so how I have viewed success in the past was opposite of joy. I felt like those were two contrasting ideas. And so as of late, I have been integrating the two as synonymous. And so when I think of success, there is deep personal trust of myself, personal or trust of others, trust of the process, the maker of it all, and then just extreme joy in the moment-to-moment wins and celebrating therein. Very cool. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Liz, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. It's been a real pleasure, Michael. Thank you for calling out to women specifically to uh, apply to be on. It was when I saw that that I gave myself permission to be on here. So thank you. Well, thank you. I appreciate your willingness to to share the journey. Absolutely. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.